1: And Brian and Matt, an Avon-based girl group is making some real waves in the music world. When the Casey sisters won America's Most Musical Family on Nickelodeon, one of the judges, Debbie Gibson, coached them a bit, and they've kept in touch since. Appearing on a recent edition of my talk show, Spotlight Connecticut, one of the sisters, Noelle Casey, shares one of the tips Debbie gave them when they were recording their cover of Oh Holy Night. One of the main ones was
0: that... um Sometimes when we perform we like to start in unison or in a solo and then break out into harmony because harmony is our our really main point you know that's really what we do. Um, But her advice was start the whole song in harmony so that people can really hear the harmony right off the
1: bat. That's one of the songs they perform during their holiday music series which they're continuing this month to learn more about their shows or also to hear some of their songs you can visit them online. KCSisters.com. That's the letters K and C.
2: Debbie Gibson. This is I,
1: love. I know you love Debbie. Oh
2: my gosh, I had a crush on her.
1: <laughs> they opened for her for a show late last uh, year. This was
2: such a bubblegum, dude, and I loved it. Oh my God. She and Tiffany were going back and forth.
1: I like Debbie more than Tiffany. I
2: do too, but they say Tiffany actually might have more talent, but she sang covers. Oh, I love this. Let me see if I can tick off a story, here or two before I talk about. You know the. By the way, the I didn't talk about the Purdue Pharma. You know, there's a. I believe they they heard arguments in this U.S. Supreme Court about. You know Purdue Pharma, they filed bankruptcy as a company, but not personally the Sackler family, and so I think it's a way for them. I mean, and again they've they've agreed to give billions up. Of course the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma makers of OxyContin, and a lot of people blame them for a large portion, not the whole po- portion of the opioid epidemic here in the country, but uh, they, they've sort of protected their a lot of their personal wealth, and this has got a little Alex Jones feel to it, but the Supreme Court case is, is sort of a massive case for litigating the opioid epidemic in America, and a lot of people are really upset at the Sacklers that they're able to keep a lot of their wealth and and deal with these legal issues, um, and we'll try to talk about that more. We won't get decisions on these for a while, though. You know, I I don't take the train a whole lot. You know, I took the you know my first job out of college. Uh, I I taught at a school, and I used to drive down to Fairfield, uh, park for free on the weekends, and take the Metro North in the city. I've I've taken that Amtrak train down to uh, Washington a ton. And, you know, there's spots where it's just like, wow, this is slow. And I just wanted to, you know, John Moritz for CT Insider. Uh, the headline is Amtrak's winding path through eastern Connecticut forces trains to crawl. Could a new route help? And, and you know, for me, I, I have a lot of questions. So I, I'm not going to you know, ask leading questions. So I'll bring them in right now. John, good morning. How are you?
0: Good. How about yourself?
2: Good. Thanks for coming on. So how bad is like, so is the shoreline the number one culprit when it comes to slow travel?
0: Well, in terms of the Northeast corridor, there's really culprits all up and down uh, the stretch leading from Boston to Washington, D.C. A lot of those are in the New York City area and along the Metro North tracks uh, in southwestern Connecticut. But uh, the story that I uh, published over the weekend is actually about one specific study into eastern Connecticut. So uh, currently Amtrak is pumping billions and billions of dollars to fixing uh, bottlenecks throughout the rest of the route, but not much of that money is going to Eastern Connecticut with the exception of the one replacement of the bridge over the Connecticut River. So this study is basically looking at the next phase of their improvements uh, a couple years down the line in terms of where they uh, want to be making investments.
2: I guess, like, is it even possible? Like, I think of the Northeast as, like, all the land is owned, most of it's developed. Like, how are you going to make it better?
0: It's certainly going to be a big challenge. Amtrak tried this a number of years ago. You may recall back in 2016, there was a proposal to move a lot of the track inland, uh, especially near Old Lyme. And residents there raised concerns about the demolition uh, and eminent domain of their older uh, historic buildings in that town. And it basically scuttled the plan.
2: So, you know, you talk about I mean, because that's the thing is like, can they can Amtrak do eminent domain? Amtrak can
0: uh, and the federal government can do eminent domain. Um, I spoke with uh, Representative Joe Courtney, who represents the area last week, and he, you know, talked about some of his concerns about that. Basically, you're right. You know, a lot of the land, it is a pretty densely packed region, even though we often consider Eastern Connecticut more rural uh, when you look at the country at large, it's still a pretty densely packed region. And there's no real area that's obvious for them to move to to make the tracks better. If you look at the route now, it pretty much hugs the shoreline, which causes a bunch of really sharp, tight curves, which is part of the reason trains have to slow down so much. So in order to get them to go faster, they'd have to have long straightaways, but that would require them to find uh, new land to build a right away. way
2: I mean, it's not like we're in the manifest destiny phase of life here. You know, I mean, uh, I just think that the era of that kind of eminent domain is, is sort of like in our, in our rear view. But so you have this they're doing a study. Right. And then and then what 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 will happen after the study? They just put forth the proposals and then we start fighting about it.
0: That's the expectation. So if you look at now, uh, the federal government's looking at spending roughly one billion dollars to fix and replace the uh, ancient railroad bridge that was built in 1907 over the Connecticut river so that's a project that you know they began looking at and studying several years back so in order to find new ways to potentially fix this route they're looking at beginning those projects several years in the future and this is just a study to kind of figure out what might be the most viable options
2: and so the biggest takeaway is nothing's happening anytime soon but they certainly recognize the problem
0: at, for At least for Eastern Connecticut, yeah. that's right. The, okay. the picture's a little different in Western Connecticut, Fairfield County, where the federal government is spending about, roughly $6 billion on projects that are set to go ahead. These are things like the Walk River Bridge replacement in Norwalk and the replacement of the Devon Bridge in Milford.
2: Now, those are more for safety. Those won't necessarily improve service and speed, though, right?
0: Uh, th- they will have small improvements in speed. Part of it, you're right, is safety. Again, these are bridges that uh, in the case of the Devon Bridge was built in the administration of Teddy Roosevelt. So they're old and they need to be replaced uh, for good state of repair. By replacing them, you are gonna allow the trains to speed up a little bit. It won't be that much of a difference, probably on the around two minutes per bridge. But when you look at the fact that they are doing this on multiple bridges in Connecticut, multiple bridges in New York, multiple bridges in New Jersey, a trip, that starts to add up for a trip to Washington, D.C. or Philadelphia. Yeah.
2: We're talking with John Morris from CT Insider here on Brian & Company. You know, you're obviously putting out copy all the time. This was over the weekend. Can I ask you a hydropower question as well? Sure. So you wrote this piece, um, you know, about hydropower and the advocates of it in Connecticut, um, mm-hmm. you know, about dam closures. But, you know, hydropower, I guess my question is, it's it's not relevant in Connecticut it's like a tiny percentage could it actually some do we have enough flowing through Connecticut for it ever to be a viable you know to increase power generation through water
0: you're right I don't have the number off the top of my head but it's something in the one or two percent yeah yeah Um, the the what Connecticut lawmakers are looking at now is not so much um, building hydropower to become a major source Power in Connecticut, but preventing older dams from closing and then having to make up that power elsewhere. So basically, even though it is only you know a fraction of where we get our energy needs from, they just want to see if there's really any reason to be closing dams that are providing some small amounts of energy.
2: Got it. So it, I mean, it, it, I don't know if you know this answer. Then if it's a it's a, a, a put you mm-hmm. on the spot question, could it could it be bigger than one percent or? I mean, I just don't see, like, there's a lot of massive flowing water power in Connecticut.
0: There, there is, a, there is a, a study that came out that was done by, I believe, the University of Idaho a couple of years back that looked at dams throughout the country. And one of the things they noted was that there are a lot of uh, existing dams in Connecticut that aren't necessarily linked up to hydropower. So this may have been things that were built, you know, many, many years ago to power mills or... Uh, other services they're not really uh, needed for anymore but that because they're already there it might be somewhat easy to link up a small hydro plant uh, to them but I don't think that there's any uh, expectation that we'll be damming the Connecticut River or the Thames River anytime soon because those uh, types of projects are going to get a lot of pushback from environmental advocates and there's you know, concerns about the wider impact on the ecosystem and the
2: environment. Hey, just real quick before I let you go, because I know you wrote about EVs too, and it's the hottest topic. It looks like it'll be the biggest topic in the next session. And Certainly. The, and, and the question really is, and that you posed that it hadn't been posed, because there's been a ton of copy and they've gone over the same issues. But what? So it looks like they're not going to do some sort of outright ban of gas-powered vehicles selling new ones by 2035, and who knows what alternatives might be put forth, but what if the question is, what if nothing happens? What if they don't do anything about it?
0: So if, they, if lawmakers fail to act uh, this uh, upcoming year, what's mo- the most likely outcome is that Connecticut will revert back to the federal emission standards, which still uh, require car manufacturers to begin uh, slowly building more and more electric and plug-in hybrid vehicles as part of their fleets. But the, the difference is, for example, the federal standards only get us to about two-thirds electric vehicles by the year 2032, where these California standards, which Connecticut has been following for decades, would require upwards of 80% uh, plug-in hybrid or electric vehicles by 2032, and then a complete ban on new cars. I want to emphasize new cars because these uh, bans would not uh, affect the sale of used cars Um, But that would go into effect in
2: 2035. Hey, great stuff, John. We appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hi, John Moritz from CT Insider. You go to ctinsider.com to read all his stuff. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So
3: let Instacart shoppers overthink your
2: groceries. So that you can overthink
3: what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
1: Highly anticipated trailer for Grand Theft Auto 6 arrived a little earlier than expected, Brian and Matt, after a copy was leaked online. Rockstar Games released its first look for the sixth game of the hugely popular video game series Monday evening, roughly 15 hours before the planned Tuesday morning unveiling while citing the leak. Rockstar Games and its New York parent company, Take-Two Interactive Software Incorporated, did not provide further details on what happened during the leak. Still, avid game fans were able to learn a few things about the 90-second teaser that they saw, including that the next installment was going to be set in Miami, inspired by City, and star a female protagonist, a first for the franchise. What game is it? It's Grand Theft, Grand Theft Auto, Auto
2: Six. Do you play it, Matt?
1: I've, I've played them in, uh, in previous years. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: I don't. know. My kids, you know, uh, Fortnite made a big comeback in the last month. Yeah. Kids have been going bananas because they went back to the some of the original seasons.
3: I
1: I, I can't GTA man. I, I can't
2: I can't play I, any of that stuff, but I tell you, when I sit down, I know that's extremely violent, but. Uh, when my kids play, I, I like to watch. It's fun to watch it. But Grand Theft Auto is actually a storyline. Like you follow a story. Yeah. Oh like yeah. You have to go find stuff, and then that's how you get through the yep. game too. Like you, you gotta have to fly go... a
1: plane and lay like one of them. But San so, Andreas was like one of the best games. But like, like,
2: there's a series of tasks. It's not just going out there and killing people.
1: No, no, it's a series of like tasks to get through.
2: Interesting. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Let's go to Mark Christopher. Some of the tasks right, are not, we're not. Not we're great. Not, yeah, we're not talking <laughs> about that. And I I wanted to get to this. It it deserves more time, and I'm just starting to read the piece. Taylor Swift is Time Magazine's Person of the Year. And, you know, of course, it doesn't carry the same weight as, you know, 40 years ago when it was one of the most read news magazines on the planet. It's still a big deal, and she beat out people like King Charles. You know what I mean? And, you know, people might say, well, why do you talk about her and this and that? Because she's probably the biggest star on the planet and there's something about her. I remember my dad took my niece to Taylor Swift like eight years ago. And I was like, that's kind of weird, Dad. And he's like, hey, I just like her. I, think I like her. I like her music. And I was like, okay. And this is my dad. He's now 84. He was like in his 70s. And and this year was was also, and the article has an interview with her, and it talks about just how this year felt different, and the thing is, she's had moments where she's been on the front page. She's had moments where she was talked about quite a bit, and she's obviously been incredibly successful. But this tour, some people say these some of these markets that she went into, she single handedly turned around the local economy, and people were going the the ticket cost and all that price was something that was you know a, a net negative in general because the average person has trouble affording to see her, but. It was a phenomena like we haven't seen in a long, long time. And the thing that she says is that she was ready. She was mature enough, emotionally confident enough to handle it. And like watching her grow up in front of us and the music she makes, the people she makes happy and living her life in such a public way, with I wouldn't say grace necessarily, just with sort of like an honesty and an authenticity and and some Mm. class. You know, and and I I think that if there's somebody who's gonna be a billionaire through their artistry and work, I have I want her to make a, a good you know Yeah. I want her Keep to, going. Yeah, because I think that she symbolizes, you know, what you know, she's trying to live life to her fullest. She's doing it right according to her and her values. And it's hard to be that good and good at what you do, and she's found a way to do it. So I'm still going through the article, but people will be like, Well, we're not interested in that. We wanna talk about this I would, like she's an icon and has a massive influence on a massive part of our society, and she's she's doing it right. Uh, to me, like I think, like Elvis
1: uh, and people are gonna
2: no. Crush that's, me people, for this. people have made that comparison, but like
1: Elvis, the Beatles, Michael Jackson, yep. Taylor Swift.
2: It's so funny you say that. This is a quote, direct quotation from the piece that went out today. You, there's no way you read it. As a pop star, she sits in rarefied company alongside Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson, and Madonna. As a songwriter, she's been compared to Bob Dylan, Paul mm-hmm. McCartney, and Joni Mitchell, and she's worth over a billion, and she made all that herself—absolute yeah, juggernaut. Um, anyway, so I—I I mean, I could talk more about it. I mean, the interview is great so far. She told the story. I gotta tell you, it's an amazing story. Um, Kenny Chesney. Booked her to be, be the opener for her yeah. when she was 17. Yeah. And they had a bouncer because they were sponsored by a beer and she was underage. And Kenny Chesney, <laughs> according to the story, and she was devastated. Like devastated. It was the biggest break of her career. Was, someone came up to her. I think she went to like a Kenny Chesney show or something. No, it was her 18th birthday. Somebody gave her a card from Kenny Chesney and had a note. Said, sorry you couldn't join us on tour. And had a check. Wow. And she said the check was bigger than any check she had ever gotten in oh, her yeah. life. And help sort of fund her future. And like, that's the kind of crap, like that's, how can you not like Kenny Chesney now for doing that? In some ways, this this conversation, it, it probably merits more than eight minutes, but uh, I was really interested in talking with Representative Josh Elliott. I wrote an op-ed uh, a couple of days ago in the Hartford Current titled, Our Tax Structure in Connecticut is Broken. You know, it's just an interesting topic. We're having these budget adjustments, and so the, you know, our... The surpluses are going down and talking about, you know, the impact of the tax cuts from last year and what the state looks like moving forward, the budget projections. And part of the reason I think Lamont's going to run for a third term is that they're supposed to be in the black no matter what happens for the next five years. But let's talk to uh, Representative Josh Elliott uh, on Brian and Company. Good morning, sir. How are you?
3: Morning, Brian. Thanks for having me. Hey,
2: thanks for coming on. And, you know, listen, whether I agree or disagree, you know, taking the courage and the time to – to write this brings up the discussion, which is important, I think, for everybody. So I appreciate it. Um, just give yeah, give people your thesis here.
3: Yeah, general thesis is this. Uh, a lot of my thinking stems from two studies that the state put out, <clears throat> one in 2014, one in 2019. And what we see is that People who are in the bottom 50% of the income limits or income thresholds in Connecticut are paying about one, th- or three times what the uh, top five percent are paying in Connecticut. Sorry, my dog ate something last week and is now wheezing, so I'll try to stay away from it <laughs> yes, wheezes fun. in the background. And, and a, a part of the reason that the, the wealthy and the rich in our state pay so much less uh, in terms of a percentage of their income to taxes is not because of state taxes, it's because of local taxes. It's because of the property tax, which goes towards funding primarily education, but a whole host of other things. And now in other states, what they do is they send so much more money back to their municipalities, or they'll have county government sending money back to municipalities to offset how regressive the property tax is. We don't do nearly enough of that. So a lot of what I talk about is the fact that We have so much additional revenue coming that we handicap ourselves with because we don't put it towards funding, towards municipalities. Therefore, people who make less pay so much more. And that, to me, is the the crux of the problem.
2: Okay. So in practical terms, what would you want seen done?
3: So we have three main uh, handicaps. And that is the revenue cap, that is the spending cap, and that is the volatility cap. The revenue cap just basically says, Listen, if you want to spend $500 million, you have to raise $500 million plus 1.25%. And that gives us a little bit of uh, that comfort zone when the markets do something that we don't expect over the long term. Right. Then you have the spending cap, which says that at a certain limit, uh, you can't go above uh, this number every year. And it goes up every year based either on inflation or based on other various costs. And so that keeps our spending in check. And then you have the volatility cap, which to me is, is the worst of the caps. I, I actually um, like the revenue cap. I think that's really smart. And I think all of the caps that we have uh, at a base level make a lot of sense. To me, it's a matter of degree. So what the volatility cap does is it says that if you take a certain amount of money, again, over a certain amount, uh, based off of the money that we take in from receipts that are related to Wall Street... And now, specifically, it that are related to the pass-through-entity tax, which we hadn't really conceived of as much in 2017, and we made some changes over the past few years. Right. Um, we've been taking in $1.3 billion additional billion every single year on average due to the volatility cap that gets directed straight to the pensions. Now, I should say, Connecticut has a massive pension problem. And what I mean by this is that there's about $80 billion that that we essentially are going to owe over time. Now, since the early 2000s, we've put away about $40 billion. So it's not like we've done nothing. We've done a really, really good job of putting ourselves in a good position. And about 2045 is when we expect to have the full, let's say $80 billion in today's money put away for these uh, um, unfunded liabilities. But the problem is that because of the metrics that we've set for ourselves, when you have increased costs for higher ed, or transportation, or any sort of education, uh, any sort of spending that's not seen as fixed, we aren't able to keep up with those costs. Right. And so we have all this money that's being dumped directly into pension obligations, when we do have some flexibility, and my argument finally is this, is that the volatility cap is meant to protect us against the swings from Wall Street. But the pass-through entity tax is not wildly swinging. So that is recurring revenue. Any sort of recurring revenue we take in really should be going towards line items that are also very consistent over time. So a chunk of that $1.3 billion really ought to be going towards our year-to-year, day-to-day okay.
2: expenses. So, I mean, again, I don't know as much of this stuff as, as you do. So if, if forgive my ignorance on what I might get to here. We're talking with Representative Josh Elliott here who wrote an op-ed in The Current that you should check it out about our tax structure being broken. Uh, we're on track – to fully fund those pension liabilities, as you said, um, yeah. and that will end up saving a ton of money on debt service. The revenues right. are slowing, right? And working right. I- increasing long term spending increases your fixed costs, like. You know the less less flexibility here is a really good point, but like it's hard to argue against the other things that are actually working right now, other than maybe the disproportionate paying of taxes by lower and middle income people. Because right now the framework is there to be in a really strong position in twenty years.
3: So how a lot of
2: not a lot of people are going to want to change things because of that.
3: I want to say first of all, I agree entirely with your perspective. To me, what I'm talking about is just degree. And we're spending 20 years not making these investments. My perspective is yes, we are saving a ton of money in terms of uh, the savings for these debt payments. But what we're missing on the other side of that coin is that we know there's an, an enormous multiplier effect with any sort of government spending. And then spending that happens on the local level has this virtuous effect of being used over and over and over again I think it's something like five to eight times uh, every dollar that you spend, you you get back. Now the other side of that is as you add more and more increased uh, fixed costs, that is going to be a huge burden down the line, which we're facing now. We're trying to solve essentially in 20 years, 70 years worth of fiscal mismanagement. My goal is, is to say we are essentially Short changing an entire generation of people based off of three generations worth of mismanagement. We can push that out a little bit more, and we're going to help a lot of people along the way. I think that there's an incredible amount of need out there. And as we've seen, even through the pandemic, when you saw seven or nine percent CPI increases, and people's cost of living uh, is just going through the roof, and it's so expensive to live in our state, Uh, we're squeezing out the middle class. I believe that it's the government's role to help ease that pain. And we can do that essentially by fixing our our property tax structure, not by charging people more, but by trying to rejigger how we take in revenue and how we spend. So a lot of my goal, I would say, end of the line, it doesn't even have to be revenue positive. It could be revenue neutral. I'm more concerned than anything else about who pays what and what percentage of their income.
2: Uh, listen, as a card-carrying middle-class member um, who's got kids about to go to college, It's uh, I do think the middle class is getting a raw deal in so many elements of our culture right now. We're out of time. Uh, Josh, we really appreciate it, and nice job putting that issue out there.
3: Appreciate it. Have me back for about a half hour next time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Even more into the weeds. Abs- <laughs> I, agree. I-, I agree.
2: It merits much more time. Thank you, sir.
3: All right, Brian. Take care. All right.
2: Representative Josh Elliott joining us. It's 9 o'clock.